Well, hello everyone and welcome to Rebecca Sinclair and welcome to the Howling Coyote podcast. And um, I'm excited to have Rebecca on the podcast today because I read her paper. I read several of her papers on indigenous logic and found them quite inspiring and, and instructive. And uh, I know Rebecca is in Oregon. I always get Oregon State and the University of Oregon confused. So mm -hmm. my apologies. I know you're at one of the two. <laughs> Actually, I was at I was at both. I graduated from uh, University of and now I'm teaching at Oregon State. So oh, okay. So, so just yeah, all of it. <laughs> right, right, right. People who, who follow football would be distressed that I don't separate the two. Huh. You know, they actually have a word for people who who uh, come from one and go to the other because there's a lot of them, right? So the, so um, Oregon State are the beavers and University of Oregon are the ducks. And so they call people like me platypuses. Oh, how about that? Which I just, I'm thrilled. <laughs> so speaking of yeah, being two things at once, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. in any case. All right, well, um, do you want to say a few more, more words about yourself and then we'll, we can launch into the discussion? Yeah, so first, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you uh, so much for having me on this podcast. And thanks to those who are going to listen um, for taking the time to, to engage with us. So um, yeah, I have found the work on Indigenous logic some of the most exciting and uh, yet also underrepresented work um, in Indigenous philosophy or indigenous theory out there. And I am not indigenous myself, but as someone who strives to be an ally and hopes that they are an ally, I find um, amplifying these aspects of indigenous philosophies to be some of the most important, especially because I take them to kind of be so key in helping solve problems that scientists or other groups are not really able to solve on their own or with with traditional classical logical systems and um, and I think it's really important to have indigenous voices leading the way in some of those conversations so I find the work really exciting all I can really say is that I see myself as someone who's only amplifying the literature that's already out there only amplifying the voices that are already present um, and that's pretty much what I'm doing. I just shout it louder is sort of what I think of. Um, but um, but yeah, so I'm really happy to be here talking through some of the implications of indigenous logics. And yeah, I th just find it's really thrilling work. And I'm really happy to be talking about it and getting another chance to amplify it here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. And, and I thought that, I mean, what hit me immediately was that idea that something could be not A and A at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could speak to that for a bit. Yeah. Um, so, so in classical logic, assuming not everybody who's listening to this podcast has delved into the paper itself, or indeed is that familiar with classical logic necessarily, um, in Western classical logic, there are laws the law of non-contradiction and the law of the excluded middle, which say something cannot be A or not A at the same time and not A at the same time. And if you ever get to a place where that is the case, 
something happens called the principle of explosion, where they assume that if A and not A are both true, basically all sense is completely lost. You just, you lose all ability to make meaning in the world. And um, this is, this is uh, a sort of top-down approach to logic. It's a position that starts with how we think something ought to work and then looks at the world and refuses to sort of see places where contradictions might be happening, right? So it's to say, a and not A at the same time do not make sense. Therefore, any time that I see something that seems like it might be a contradiction, we have to fix it or it's or we have to make sense of it in this really kind of limited way. We have to make it A or not A. But what I find so interesting about the people who are doing indigenous logic is that they sort of start from the other direction. They say like, no, look at the world. We see contradictions in the world all the time. We see things that seem like they're two things at the same time. And therefore, doesn't it make more sense for us to create a logical system that accommodates the reality that we're seeing in the world? So they have um, a different way of approaching the importance of logic um, and the importance of logical claims. So then the possibility of being something, two things at once, or of being both A and not A at the same time, I take to be a really important feature for things like indigenous ethics in a lot of places where people need to make claims about the benefits or harms, that, that the simultaneous benefits and harms that are coming from um, a particular you know, settler colonial activity. Um, and I especially find them interesting in I mean, for me, applying them in philosophy of science and these other places, because while science is one of the places that is perhaps most beholden to the law of non-contradiction and the laws of the not excluded middle, um, almost on the verge of being obsessed with these kinds of claims, uh, they also have a lot of instances where the world doesn't seem to mirror that back to them. So we um, kind of very common example is to think about the particle wave dilemma, right? That if you see light only as particles, you miss something. And if you see light only as waves, you miss something. So you need both, even though to say it's both a particle and a wave doesn't really make that much sense from classical logic perspectives. But then I think there are lots of other places we could be uh, using this. And I think the implications of having indigenous voices and indigenous logics lead the way there are really cool for figuring out how to decolonize science and kind of get science on, on board with um, the strengths of indigenous, really long-standing indigenous logical traditions. So yeah, that's a bit about, yeah. And could you say more about, about the, the notion of the excluded middle? Yeah, um, so I mean, I don't know if I could, I could go into a lot of technical depth, um, but I think, go for but, it. Most, but, but I would say mostly the, the dilemma is that you want, you want to have something be either this or that, and you need to have the possibility of a both and situation excluded. So there are some instances in certain logical systems where um, you end up with, a, you know, if I were to draw, if I had a whiteboard here, I could, you know, draw the things on the board, but you could end up with a solution to a logical problem that is basically indeterminate. And um, indeterminate is one classical logic solution. 
that I read um, uh, instead sort of just offer a way to sit with that um, that that both andness in in ways that that actually don't lead to the implosion of all sense and they also don't lead us to have having to force our way or force the world to conform to one or the other reality or to kind of fix this contradiction yeah and you know it seems like European-derived logic wants to force a certain mindset onto the world. Yeah. And the world doesn't actually, didn't actually read Hegel and Kant and... Uh, <laughs> right, or yeah, some of these logicians, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I know, no, to nobody's surprise, the world isn't out there reading Kant, yeah. <laughs> So you're right, that's what I was sort of implying when I spoke about a kind of top-down approach versus a, a sort of what I would take to be a kind of imminent approach in, in indigenous philosophy, to kind of work within the realm of the imminent, what's here, what's now, what they're actually seeing, and then, and then try to, um, yeah, have a logical system that accommodates those complexities versus Western classical logic sort of infamously can't rest you know can't figure out what to do with that so in one of the papers that you read on um exploding individuals i tackle the problem of biological individuality in philosophy of biology and this is basically a problem you see replicated in lots of other areas the problem of species uh, thinking about what it is to be an individual organism this kind of thing <clears throat> excuse me the problem is that we can't seem to look we can't seem to find one way of being an individual in the world Instead, it seems like there are about 50 different ways that an entity could be considered an individual. And certain things that we would take to be individuals, like you know, something that's clearly bounded like us, we would say, okay, well, you, your boundaries seem pretty fixed. You must be an individual. Then we get to other entities like aspen groves, right, which are bounded, but also multiple in certain ways. We then have a more complicated definition of the individual that doesn't really fit what we want to talk about when we talk about, you know, a homo sapien as an individual or a dog as an individual. And this dilemma has, has had philosophers biology wringing their hands for decades and decades and decades and decades. And the same is true with the species problem, which I also work on because they just can't solve it. They cannot solve it, I think, under classical logical systems. So, or I should say, if, it is to be solved and perhaps solving is not the right kind of metaphor for thinking about what should happen. But if it is to be solved, I think one good way of moving forward is indigenous, is these indigenous pair consistent logics, perhaps not the only, but if there are others, they're on the outskirts and they're under, yeah, being underthought about. Um, so this to me seemed like a very obvious and, and cool way to, to kind of propose a solution, um, which in fact, they might not in fact see as a solution, right? Because they're stuck in, in a, in a, or you know, people who, who have a classical logic um, behind them might not see this as a solution, but I, I think it is one to this kind of problem. Well, and, and I think about um, indigenous theories of mind, which puts 
which puts mind between, you know, expands mind beyond the limits of the body. Yeah. Puts mind into the relationships that one has with other entities. Yes. And that makes the classical rendering of an individual difficult. Also difficult. Yes. Yes. I mean, yeah, same thing. I love that. That's really great. Um, what, what, uh, I'm going to write some of those down. What texts on the indigenous philosophy of mind do you have in mind there? Anything off the top of your head? Well, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of a paper that Barbara Mangai and I wrote for um, a book by, edited by uh, Hubert Hermans and um, I, I forget the name of his co-author, but it sounds Greek to me. Okay. Uh, Agnuski. Okay. Uh, Agnuski Kopka or something like that. Okay. And it, and you know in in there is this minority thread in Europe of the relational self mm-hmm. and the notion that self exists in the space between and not within. Mm-hmm. Um. And in <clears throat> in our our dialogue with with Lakota people, um, we found the same philosophy mm. that mm. that there's this notion of the Nahi, um, which is variously defined depending on who you talk to, but but my favorite definition is that it that it consists of the swarm, in the sense of a swarm of bees, of all the stories. That, that have ever influenced you or been told about you or that you've told. And that mm. each of these stories has a little spark of the being who told them, which is forever circulating around you. And that, um, so that you're non-local. Mm-hmm. You're always, out there somewhere beyond the confines that's interesting that's really interesting i bet there's a lot of cool overlap between that and like extended mind theories of con- cognition right trying to think about the way that the spider mind includes its web is not just inside right but but has this extended or the way that our phones become part of our minds that we offload you know things about that we would think of as internal to our mind, whatever that, you know, whatever that is, um, that we kind of offload them. We offload them onto other people. We offload them onto our phones in similar ways that spiders use their webs for, you know, to get information. Um, so that's really cool. I bet there's some cool. I will be exploring that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's um, uh, a paper. I only know of one other paper that in the academic literature and. I'm trying to think of the author's name, um, but maybe I'll think of it, you know, before we finish. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it it and it it's interesting to wonder what is mind. I mean, I think that's that's a hugely interesting question. That you know, because in in indigenous thinking, you know, there's not that that demarcation between my thoughts, mm-hmm. the thoughts of others that that occupy my consciousness. 
So, so I might be walking through a forest and I might be experiencing the thoughts of trees or I might be mm. experiencing the thoughts of an ancestor or I might be um, experiencing, you know, uh, the thoughts of, of the mushrooms that I'm trying not to step on as well as whatever else is in my mind, which, um, you know, that it's a fluidity of boundary mm -hmm. um, that I, I'm never quite sure where, where the boundaries are, mm -hmm. that they're fluid, that I'm, I'm <clears throat> sort of always interconnected to everything around me. And, and, um, I mean, in, in, mo in the psychiatric, in the conventional psychiatric paradigm, that would, they would say that's psychotic, but um, plenty of healthy indigenous people <laughs> around, you know, have yeah. experience and, and, and are quite capable of going to the grocery store and taking care of themselves. Yeah, and, and avoiding, you know, mm -hmm. lockup, um, and uh, and um, I don't know. I wonder if you could speak more to those ideas. Um, wow. Well, there some of them are pretty new to me. I mean, not the relationality as such, but the ex the extending it to something like theories of mind, or that's that's brand new to me. I hadn't made those connections because um, I, though I do work in philosophy of biology. I don't quite work in philosophy of mind, but um, I find them really intriguing. And it strikes me that we are, yeah, that we are coming to the, even Western philosophy or Western philosophy of mind is coming to, I mean, I don't know that they would say what we are experiencing the thoughts of trees per se, but, um, but they might, they might be wrong about that, um, or perhaps they're not, but other people are, right? But, um, but I think they are more and more, it's clear that traditional theories of mind are not quite sufficient for either explanatorial, explanatorily or predictively for, um, you know, to do good science and to do good, um, counseling right or or psychotherapy or whatever and more and more I have a friend for example who works in philosophy of mind who looks at the way that couples uh, function as a mind and um, the way that they think each other's thoughts um, and kind of just become and offload things to one another I don't have to remember how to do this because you know how to do it and right they kind of just become a unit not just in a romantic way, right? But in an actual, right, cognitive way, they're rewired based on their relationship. And, um, and it's, I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, of course we can, that's that principle can be extended to, you know, non-human animals that we live with or other entities that are in our lives and probably um, with forests and with other, the more attentive, you know, the wider your scope of relationality, why not say that that's, yeah, that that's another way of articulating, yeah, 
kind of cog a cognitive yeah function in some way I mean yeah I'm a bit out of my depth here so I don't want to say anything that'll get me in trouble but I I, I am really interested in brainstorming that further because so that's another I, I will say you didn't ask about this but I will say that I often find in philosophy I will find I often find that indigenous philosophy is relegated to thinking humans about human-centric problems and um, about issues of ethics and justice and kind of politics sort of only right um now there's very good reasons right to be foregrounding ethics and politics and justice for right for in philosophy for indigenous peoples because and in some ways their indigenous peoples are leading the way and in, in articulating those as primary concerns on the other hand there are sort of maybe fewer scholars, but trying to say, well, yeah, but there's also all this stuff that is um, connected to like possibly theories of mind, right? And why not have a robust indigenous theory of mind that can be taught in theories of mind classrooms? And I think the key, as you know, somebody like Kyle White notes, we don't wanna disconnect the use of those theories and the kind of proliferation of those theories or not proliferation, dissemination of those theories we don't want to disconnect that from ethics, from ethics and justice, right? We want to say, we need to use these respectfully. We need to have indigenous communities, not just you know indigenous academics, at the forefront of this, you know, engagement. We don't want it to just be a bunch of white people talking about indigenous philosophy of mind, and then, but still like, not trying to decolonize their practices or create allyship or whatever. But for me, one of the more interesting kind of ways is that, that indigenous theory and philosophy is going is in something like indigenous science and technology studies where indigenous scholars are standing up and saying like, let's think about genetics in an indigenous way. Let's think about philosophy of mind in an indigenous way. Let's think about computers and algorithms. And like, let's you know bring this immense amount of resources that we have beyond just the social, ethical and political to be kind of bringing them yeah to these other areas of of scholarship that that um just seems so cool and and like yeah it's about time i'm so excited about that sort of thing so this is a really exciting new direction yeah i'm really glad you mentioned it yeah well my background is in psychiatry mm -hmm. and i find the psychiatric paradigm to be um extremely annoying <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> well, the 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 way that psychiatry turns everything into a noun. Yeah. That there's no verbs. Mm -hmm. that, that you, and we we train patients to think that way. You know, mm -hmm. so people walk in and they say, "Well, my bipolar is acting up," mm -hmm. and that really doesn't tell me anything about what they're experiencing mm -hmm. but so we we throw these labels at them wow yeah and and then invite them to live the labels out you know instead of saying well you're you're engaged in a story about how to mm -hmm. negotiate you know your position in the world and um it's causing you some difficulty Mm -hmm. You know, you're experiencing friction in your self-world interface and, um, you know, looking at it as process instead of now. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Um, actually, 
Um, that is, so I mentioned kind of casually that I also work on the, on the problem of species mm -hmm. and um, which is basically similar, exactly parallel to the problem of the individual. I mentioned earlier, too many definitions, which don't seem to, they're not mutually reinforcing. They're, most of them are mutually exclusive and they don't name the same entities, pick out the same groups in the world. In any case, there are two sort of solutions to that. And I put them in quotes because nobody really thinks they're great solutions, but um, one of them is pluralism to just accept that multiple definitions of species can be true, which is kind of akin to the true contradiction um, logical answer. But then another emerging solution is to think of species as processes, not as nouns, not as groups in this closed way that you think of, okay, here's the thing and here's your boundaries, but to begin to think of species kind of exclusively as, as sets of processes, um, which gets, yeah, pretty close to this idea that you're talking about, kind of focusing on processes rather than nouns. Can, can you say more, can you pick a species and, and, or I guess if it's a process, it's hard to pick a species. <laughs> can you say more about, can you give us an example? Well, um, so mo I, no, no uh, because most of my work in trying to solve the species problem, you know, coming from the logic work that I've done was to dabble with pluralism as a solution to the species problem. So, and I did use indigenous, a lot of indigenous scholarship to build that case in, in my recent dissertation. But um, so I, I have a lot less of a sense about what a concrete example of a process, a species as a process would look like. But I can say that some of the effects of treating it as a process rather than treating a species as a process rather than a noun. I mean, imagine, look, look at the way conservation works right now. Um, which is really focused on figuring out where the boundaries of a group lie. And the problem is that based on your definition of species, the boundaries of the group like shift, right? And um, if conservation rests on figuring out where the boundaries are and the boundaries are constantly shifting, you, you really have a lot of, you know, meaningful entities falling through the cracks all the time because they make it into a boundary or they don't make it into a boundary. And if you make it into a boundary, congratulations, you're on a reserve, right? And if you don't make it into a boundary, alas, you're not protected or, you know, this sort of thing. And we see this, um, you know, for example, we've seen this in giraffes and elephants to charismatic megafauna that you'd think we'd have figured out given that they are like the face of conservation, right? But um, it turns out that the species has been a pretty contentious issue around giraffes and elephants and conservation has then had to shift when the definition of species, when a new definition of species was applied and more species were created than what we thought. So elephants are a great example. There's, I think it was in the early 2000s, um, we went from basically having two elephant species to having like four elephant species. And before if conservation's focusing on just two, Right then, some of the individuals who are in the in those sort of subgroups, it's okay. Like you go from thinking, oh, there are like ten thousand because we have this really broad category, right, to being like, oh no, this is the species, and instead we only have five thousand of each or whatever, right? And so then you've got to adjust conservation based on this scarcity that you didn't realize was there. So you can see how 
focusing on boundaries and, and focusing on really clear species definitions as kind of groups of things has implications for the way conservation unfolds as an example. And how to think about mo right now, the thinking about species as processes in my knowledge and research is pretty speculative. So there are lots of books about it, but there aren't like, for example, many conservationists who are thinking, what would it mean to see this as a species as a process? But that is kind of what my work should I choose, you know, my task should I choose to accept it would be to kind of look there um, to see how the theoretical stuff on species as processes might map specifically to impacting conservation practices, for example, differently. But yeah. You make me think about coyotes and mm -hmm. the spread across North America and and what's happening as they breed with dogs. Yes. Wolves. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the whole question of, well, so what is a coyote? Yeah. What is not a coyote? And where where are these where are these creatures going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really, and I mean, of course, so so much of the problem, you know, it's it's a challenge that conservation is one of the only ethical models for engaging with coyotes in like Western society, right? Part of the problem with with um, this species dilemma in conservation is just that the model that we have that. We, we can't as individuals be ethical with coyotes in our communities, but that, that we only think of them as an object to be preserved, right, for the sake of conservation, some, some idea that conservation. Um, that's really sad. And it's not at all to me consistent with, you know, indigenous ways of knowing or of in interacting with the land where for them, you know, I would be interested to hear from indigenous peoples if they feel a loss um, if the species definition of a coyote changes or if coyotes breed with wolves and dogs, if they feel like there's something pure getting lost or if there are just new relations being formed with new groups based on the shifts, you know, whereas opposed to Western conservation would be like, no, this is, this is a crime because we have to preserve the coyote as, coyote as, a, as an entity, as a fixed pure, as a noun, right? But I wonder what it would be like to be like, well, no, they're verbs, you know, they're processes and their processes taking them over here now. And so we just have to have ethical relations over here instead of having them with a noun, you know, that we're trying to keep as a noun, despite the fact that it's becoming a verb in these other ways. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's not something that I've ever thought to ask people, you know, about their views about the morphing of coyotes. Yeah, that would be such an interesting, that'd be such an interesting, because it really would fly in the face of the way that people think conservation should work, which is usually based on maintain, maintaining a kind of pure and optimal genetic lineage. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's a real problem. <laughs> it's pretty, it's a pretty eugenicist uh, take on, you know, conservation. So um, yeah, that would be so, we should write a paper together on that, you know, that'd be super interesting. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think coyotes are the only species that are spreading and growing in North America. They're, 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 I'm, I'm reading an interesting book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. Oh, what a great book. Yeah. 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 And I thought, well, 
Coyotes are sort of the mammal equivalent to matsutake mushrooms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're figuring out how to survive in the ruins of Western civilization. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're quite clever at it. I mean, they're pulling it off. Yeah. Just like matsutake yeah. mushrooms. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I mean, the coyote at the end of the world, that's, that's just waiting to be written. You know? <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And um, so maybe we could, we could turn our attention to philosophy of science for a minute, because I know sure. that's something that interests you. And, and, um, and I have an interest in that too, because I, I um, rail against the privileging of the randomized double-blind control trial as the only oh. legitimate way yeah. to gain knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I, I can see that you have a reaction to that too. Yeah, we were just talking about that in my class this past week, actually. Well, but go ahead, tell me, tell me your thoughts, yeah. Well, um, so my first thought is that the world is not random. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah a super big difference, right? Wow. Yeah, and that the world is not controllable. Yeah, and, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and that and that um, that we let we let the extremes control the mean, and I I think that is profitable for capitalism when it comes to drug use mm -hmm. and and probably damaging to most people you know there's this group of of epidemiologists at um university of washington that talk about the lake wobegon effect i don't know if you've run into that but no yeah they they talk about how um in 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 lake wobegon uh everyone is a little more perfect than everywhere else. And, <laughs> and they link it to randomized control trials in that um, the, this, the outliers control the results. Yeah. That, that those who are furthest from the mean control the mean. Mm -hmm. And they, they have this notion of the 80-20 rule, which is that 20% yeah. of the people in the trial control the results and 80% probably got no benefit and won't get any benefit and probably get all the side effects. Yeah. So your turn, let me, let me hear what, you, what your thoughts are. Well, I was just, we were talking about this in the context of um, actually Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, um, Reading Sweetgrass, right? Because we've well, such a great book, right? We we read the grammar of animacy, so of course that is um, a, a chapter in the book, and that is reminiscent of the discussion about verbs versus nouns. Um, um, and then also, of course, she uses the she talks about the language of plants frequently, which also is reminiscent of our our kind of idea that when we're walking through the forest, we might be thinking other thoughts or hearing other languages that are more than just kind of our own, but Specifically, we were looking at a chapter in which a student of hers tries to create, she's trying to understand how to, how to, how to harvest sweet grass. And um, 
why it seems to be the case that different harvest methods improve sweetgrass um, productivity, like that sweetgrass prefer it, in other words, when they're harvested and harvested in different ways, sweet grasses, I should say. And she cannot seem to get this idea across to her, the faculty, to the Western faculty at, who are at her university. Um, and she, she sets out this control group um, and, and it ends these two control fields of sweetgrass. And it turns out that they're the ones who end up just being devastated while the groups that she attends to are, you know, they thrive and she, she harvests differently in different groups. Um, yeah, but they are the ones that really thrive. And so we were sort of talking about, yeah, the expectations of the, of her faculty, you know, who basically laughed at her project and who were like, well, this is not going to be a controlled, you know, experiment. It's not, it's not going to work out. Also, you're using this language of like respect and like the plants will run away if you don't respect them. And like, that doesn't make any sense to us. Um, and so we were sort of trying, we were talking about how for Kimmerer, you know, and the Anishinaabe or Potawatomi perspective, the world isn't random and these, you know, the control doesn't function like control functions in Western scientific um, experiments. And we were also talking about the grief, interestingly, the grief that was expressed um, by the woman, um, Kimura's student over the loss of the sweetgrass in the two fields, right? That they were not excluded from the study because they were, because they didn't do well, right? Or they weren't, they weren't like taken less seriously or, or there was no less concern showed for them because they, they turned out not to be, you know, they died or they didn't do very well. They were actually this really meaningful part that she mourned that their, their loss as a result of this. So yeah, we were, we were talking about the way that the experiment unfolded and how differently it unfolded from the way that Western scientists think experiments ought to be set up and how they ought to unfold and why they think that, right? The kind of epistemological differences between yeah, Western epistemic assumptions, which lead us to, to, you know, seemingly have to create situations like this or studies like this in order to call something knowledge at the end. Whereas, yeah, very different epistemic perspective in uh, the pot in the Potawatomi um, readings. Yeah, yeah, and um, it is. You know, I've I took a course once upon a time at the University of Arizona on clinical trials. And um, the professor was, of course, an expert on clinical trials, or else why would he teach the course? Mm -hmm. And, and um, I was struck by the obsession over control groups, mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. what, is, what is the adequate control, mm -hmm. and the notion that you can isolate vari variables. Yeah. And actually look at something isolated from the rest of the world and all of its connections with everything else. And, and you know, I, I had some interesting arguments with him um, about um, interconnectedness, obviously. Yeah. And, but, but, 
he he really believed that that you can control everything so tightly that you can look at one variable in isolation that you can mm -hmm. isolate one variable mm -hmm. and, and i think that's mostly what we do in medicine and we, we sort of pretend that we've succeeded <laughs> we're like you know ostriches we put our head in the yeah in the, and we say well um and and it reminds me reminds me of a study that really impressed me which was a study of a drug um for bipolar depression and they they had such strict entrance requirements for subjects that it took them 43 academic medical centers to get 240 subjects oh my word yeah and and so so the requirement for it was that this person had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and and one can wonder what that is also but that's right, of course yeah conversation but they could have never ever contemplated suicide they could never have any other disease they could never have used a substance um and i mean the list went on <clears throat> and i i when i read the study i thought you know i I've never seen such a person in my I was life. just gonna say, I don't think you could find that in one person, let alone <laughs> let alone somebody with bipolar. That's madness. What? Well, that's why it took them 43 academic medical. I schools. mean, that is wild. Yeah. Yeah. But the study succeeded in getting FDA approval for this particular drug because they showed statistical significance over a control group. Oh my word. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's totally wild. I mean, especially because you have the isolation of bipolar. Right, assuming that bipolar is a thing that doesn't come with anything else or doesn't have any other, you know, that it, it isn't a sort of tendril structure, that it's like just a thing, you know, a, right. a clearly bounded thing um, mm -hmm. is seems so foreign to me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and and then it's complicated by this whole idea that that minds are like botany you know that we we can create a kind of botanical classification mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. mental disorders rather than the idea that everything is on a continuum mm -hmm. and, and it's sort of a social construction you know when we decide that something is sufficiently abnormal to need our attention yes yes I mean, have you ever read, um, Ian Hacking has a philosopher, um, who does a, yeah, a, yeah, he's a really interesting philosopher. And he has this piece that I teach a lot called Making Up People. Yeah. And you might find it, I, I, I suspect you'll find it really in line with what you're saying. And he sort of takes a Foucauldian um, history of science constructionist approach, um, in that he, you know, he, he doesn't go quite as far as to say that things are, that diagnoses are totally, you know, out of nowhere. Um, but he's really clear that there's a feedback loop, right? That you, 
identify something and then people begin to identify like, like bipolar or obesity or whatever. And then people begin to identify as that or, or identify with that. And suddenly you have a whole new way of being a subject or of being a person that was really just created by this label, right? That could have been any, could have been an, inf you know, that, that, that label could have unfolded any other way, so many other ways. It's, you know, so much of the history of medicine is like happenstance, right? Or, um, so I think you would find it a really interesting piece to support what you're saying. And, um, and yeah, as I said, it's really teachable. Students really like it. So it's another reason I, because it gets, it gets at this point in a really clear, and a, I mean, making up people, right? What a great title. We're yeah. all about titles in academia. So <laughs> really gets to the heart of it. <laughs> I'll have to look for that. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, get, it gets to, well, to the point of what do we do when people are distressed? You know, and if, if we think it's a thing, then we think we can just throw drugs at them and make mm -hmm. them fine. Mm -hmm. And rarely does that work. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, I mean, at least in my experience, it's more the exception than the rule. Mm -hmm. Mostly people suffer despite what drugs we throw at them. Yeah, I mean, especially if, I mean, I, I, I have been on um, medications before that I found were really helpful as part of a holistic approach to a problem. I am not of the opinion that we should just go about our lives, just take, take pills and then just hope that our brain chemistry changes and that that's the world of the problem. Because usually the, pro the problem is coming from co connections and relations and social things and, and they have physiological effects or, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I don't do this, but you know, armchair psychologists, like that's my position, but they have really real physical, physiological effects. And I don't want to dismiss people's right or people's or, or the benefits that those things harm. I mean, that those things, those, um, you know, drugs can offer because I've seen them offer them, but they, when they do it really well is when the person is already committed to shifting relations and, you know, and it's like, this is just like a little boost, you know, like caffeine doesn't actually get you out of bed and do stuff, you know, like it doesn't control you, but it can like give you like a little extra punch, you know, if you need something, but it's not going to be the thing that gets you going, you know, it's just like a little bit of help. So yeah, it seems to me like, sure, we can have some of these things. I'm sure they're very helpful, but like, that's not the exclusive solution. Um, and I think treating it as if it is just allows us to ignore the social and political and ethical problems that really, you know, facilitate these problems in the first place or a big part of it anyway. So, so how do we bring indigenous philosophy into science? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, and I think there are a lot of people writing about how to do that. I also think it depends on what position you write from. So for me, as you know, a settler, someone who hopes and strives to be an ally, but you know, is never quite sure they're succeeding. The point for me is to, to, to bear some of the labor and the responsibility for introducing indigenous concepts to places that they're not already being introduced, right? And I see it as, a, as an amplification, just sort of saying, 
well, there's all this really cool stuff happening over here that you all are just completely out of touch with. So let me just boop some of that over here and we can see, you know, um, yeah, see what happens, see what's helpful. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's a, from my position as somebody who is not indigenous and does not see my role as facilitating indigenous science, right? Um, but rather trying to draw, draw connections. And as I said, to do some work. I, I once had, I wanted to invite, um, uh, some, I was at teaching at uh, University of Oregon and I wanted to invite um, a colleague of mine, um, a, Hopi, a Hopi colleague of mine to come in and, and right, give a lecture. And because I was like, oh, you know, I'm a settler and it's, you know, I want indigenous voices to be present. And she was like, yeah, but indigenous people don't have time for this all the time. You know, like we sometimes, we have other lives. We can't just go about showing up to lecture. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's so right. So it's in that vein that I see like, this is labor that someone's got to do, you know? And I feel like I'm a good person to do some of that labor or I'm, I'm striving and hoping to be a person to do some of that labor. But in terms of the model that you, which you might've been asking about um, what it, yeah, how to, how to think about a model of bringing indigenous science and uh, indigenous science and, and Western science or indigenous knowledge uh, and Western science together. I think I'd try to look to people like Kyle White who are talking about, he's a philosopher and um, among other things and um, who are talking about what it means to think about indigenous knowledge without divorcing that knowledge from what it does for indigenous peoples, which I think is often a temptation, right? To be extractive. Let me just, let me just grab this tasty bit of indigenous knowledge and move it over here, right? And make something happen. But then ignore the fact that that knowledge is part of this ecosystem for indigenous peoples that is part of what it means for them to be a sovereign political entity and you know to have ongoing ecological relations and whatever so i i think it's a temptation that is consistent with settler colonialism to for people to want to take just a bit and then kind of leave what doesn't fit and um so for me a lot of my papers try i think in trying to be respectful of, of indigenous communities, in addition to the model of amplification, which is currently how I sort of see myself, I also really try to um, always focus on the function of this knowledge for indigenous peoples and why it's important and what it means for scientists to take it seriously, which is not just that scientists say, thank you for that tidbit of information, we're gonna be over here now running with it and we can ignore your silly little sort of thinking with trees in the forest situation, right? But um, kind of encourage and give scientists ways of continuing to engage with indigenous um, systems of thought and, and communities. So I think without that, we just are, yeah, we're just doing more extractivist colonial activity in terms of taking from indigenous people resources and, and using it for things that are, are, do not benefit them. And I don't think that's okay, but I've said a lot, so I don't know. So some things are like that is how I kind of think, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's complicated because I think we both agree that indigenous principles are a better way of doing things than 
modernist, um, reductionist, empiricist, positivist. <laughs> and, and therefore, um, if that's the case, then it needs to, then it needs to spread. It needs, yeah. it needs to move toward the mainstream. Mm -hmm. It needs to move out of indigenous communities and into every and to everyone. And, and so it gets comp complicated mm -hmm. because, because, um, you know, there's that sense of, oh, I mean, I think, I think it can work against indigenous philosophy to say that only indigenous people can do it. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a, I, it, it very well might, it very well might. So I've, you know, when I'm on the job market, I have to think about how I, how I describe myself. Do I say that I do indigenous philosophy or not? Right. And I, I do, I say that I do, or that I specialize in native American philosophy is actually what I say. I specialize in it because it's not actually indigenous broadly speaking, but native American specifically. I focus and I specialize in Native American philosophy. But it does feel weird to say as a non-Native person. And it also feels like, to, like a lot of philosophy is an act of creation. And um, I don't want to have what I create be called Native American philosophy because I'm not a Native American person. But I am okay saying that I know as a lot of Native American philosophy and that, um, you know, that I try to be an ally and that I hope to do some good over here, but I, but I, I don't wanna have what I'm doing be itself called doing Native philosophy. Um, but again, I, for me, the model of amplification works so well because in a way I get, I, I can do both then, right? I can say that I'm doing Native American philosophy, but only because I'm reproducing and, and amplifying what's already out there and being done. Not because what I'm doing is, you know, this, this creative stuff I'm doing is itself Native in origin, but that I'm able to take, you know, take and borrow and um, amplify stuff that already exists. And in that way, I do do indigenous philosophy, but I agree that this stuff needs to spread. And part of, for me, the logic paper was so key because it, it, um, it manages to get at the heart of something that so few people even recognize as a problem. And it does it in a way that amplifies something that isn't really even being talked about in indigenous literature very frequently in ways that really can get legs. I mean, you wouldn't imagine the number of people who've contacted me about this paper people working in all kinds of disciplines or whatever, because they're just so anxious for solutions that are not, you know, in this, in this, lit, this litany of description you gave earlier, right? In this Western, you know, settler mindset, mm -hmm. they're just dying for it. And so I feel like, oh, if this paper did anything, it just, it just managed to point to, to really cool resources that indigenous communities have, that indigenous knowledges have for doing stuff better. And I, I hope it spreads there but not that I you know that I do indigenous philosophy and that spreads but that like the arrow keeps getting pointed in the right direction you know back to the indigenous communities is my hope <laughs> so yeah someone 
someone said the best way to get things done is to take no credit for it. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty complex, especially because, you know, in capitalism, we need jobs. And so to say, you know, I say I do indigenous philosophy because I, I want a job, you know, and I want to, and I teach Native American philosophies. Um, I mean, I don't say that I teach Native American philosophy in order to get the job, but that's, you know, that's just where we are. So, um, yeah, I wish that uh, the work that I did didn't, didn't need to correspond to random academic, you know, whatever the um, areas of specialization and, you know, the cover letter business, but but there are ways that, yeah, one has to be really careful in terms of structuring one's identity around doing this kind of thing, um, because people are really eager to commodify indigenous scholarship and Native American philosophy, and they want somebody who does Native American work. And as a non-Native person, I can't like let you hire me over a Native person, right? <laughs> like that's who you need to hire if you're going to be doing this. So it's really complicated at the once you kind of back up from the from the work and start thinking about it in terms of livability and right that kind of thing it's really complicated real fast and 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 interestingly if it were 200 years ago you could apply to the local tribe to become a citizen oh yeah that's right you know and 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 so we also have this artifact of colonization called the blood quantum act oh yeah yeah so, and I, I, I'm always reminded of the, the chief of the Cherokee Nation during the time when the forced relocation occurred was technically seven eight Scottish. Okay, I'm seven eight Scottish. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Ross was his name. And, and yet in 1832, he was 100% Cherokee. Yeah. When today, he would be... Yeah you know what, 16% Cherokee, mm -hmm. you know? So it, it's complicated. I mean, very complicated. But, but maybe one more thing before we wrap up. And, and so one of the things that I've read um, is that in indigenous science is qualitative. And I really want, I wanna find an argument against that because I think that quantitative work is useful, can be very useful, mm -hmm. and it can be done in, in an indigenous way. Yeah. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I'm just writing this down. So I have all this great stuff to think about later. Um, what can I ask do you mean by it could be done in an indigenous way. What, what do you mean by that specifically? Okay, so so let's let's say that um, how I mean what I'm trying to figure out is how would we proceed if we recognize that all the variables were interrelated and that you can't control one. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the best that I've come up with so far is is uh, some of the systems dynamics work that's been done at MIT and Dartmouth in which they're creating these um, 
complex mathematical models of mm -hmm. of real of the world in some form and and you know um in in sort of engineer fashion saying well we're successful if we predict something as it actually turns out then then we've we've come up with one plausible theory of how things work um and and i'm i'm playing with that now in my own work for um cognitive you know modeling cognitive impairment because there's there's at least there's a minimum of 20 factors maybe more mm -hmm. absolutely more that affect cognition and um if 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 you wanted to study each of them in isolation with a randomized control trial it would take more than a thousand years and, and yeah that's kind of dysfunctional. Yeah. So, so my thought is if we could create, if we could think mathematically about interrelations and interdependencies, and and we could have some predictive validity, then we could we could play with how changing something would affect the outcome. And and um, and if you know if if we yeah. mirror reality, if we mirror what we observe with what we predict, then we're we're moving in the right direction. But that's, yeah, that's what I've come up with. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I mean there are all of these you know, so many indigenous stories have, like I'm thinking about this uh, son of Raven um, who keeps trying to succeed, right? In the, in, the, in the creation story, he keeps trying to succeed and he keeps failing for various reasons. And he keeps changing one little thing about what he's doing. Um, but I would be interesting to read that from this perspective of whether or not he's isolating variables, for example. Mm -hmm. um, um, I imagine there are, because he, he ends up succeeding. He finds, he tries and he tries and he tries and he fails and he fails and he fails. And then he finds a way that works. And, um, you know, it would be interesting to go through stories like that or accounts like that to figure out, yeah, it's it's a kind of experiment, right? Um, right. What what right. are the epistemic principles that are guiding? That do we get from that story in terms of isolating or not isolating? And are you know as of course as so many, you know, as stories like this are, it's it's pretty you know morally complex and it has a a lot uh, going on. So it might it would also be interesting to see. What kinds of lessons the story is telling? Um, a lot, probably contradictory, you know, lessons at some points. But yeah, I think that would be a really cool. It seems like really important and interesting work. To, but the only way I know, I know how to get at those things 
is, you know, in addition to talking to indigenous Native American persons is to look at the stories and the accounts of what's of, you know, that they retell and how those might offer insights into what, yeah, what it might look like to run an experiment, right? Or like to try to have a predict predictive uh, capacity without an isolationist perspective. Yeah. I'll have to look at that story again. I know the story, but I hadn't thought of it in this regard and I'll have to re-examine it. Yeah, I think that's the question. Go ahead. Well, how does one do non-isolationist research? Yeah, yeah, that is such an interesting, really, really interesting question. How to do non-isolationist research. I wonder if also, you know, because my primary area is sort of like environmental scholarship. Um, I think that there are probably lots of ways that this is happening in the ways that indigenous people give accounts of loss of species, for example, or problems in their environments. Um, yeah, I would suspect that there is stuff in those stories and th th those accounts um, of indigenous knowledge about problems that also gets at some of this, less experiment focused, but, um, but yeah, it, it is a kind of multifaceted explanation and they are isolating some things in order to articulate what it is that's going wrong um, and, or why it's going wrong. But I, I bet that there's a lot there because right, because Native Americans are constantly telling us what's going wrong in the environment. What is being lost, who is being lost, why they're being lost. They're, you know, they're counting, they're telling us who, you know, why there are reductions in population. Well, it's it's everywhere. It's not we're not very good at listening to that stuff, but it's it's all over the place. So there must be resources there as well for figuring out, yeah, how people are able to make claims and isolate factors in a non-isolationist way, <laughs> or to, yeah, to, yeah, that kind of thing. So, ooh, that's another really interesting idea. Yeah, it's it's sort of in the ilk of figuring out how things work. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm writing that down too. Um, <laughs> yeah, and there's also, I've been thinking this whole time about, um, because so much of what we're saying, it's it's about indigenous epistemologies or, or the, the principles that really govern what it means to know something and how you know it. And um, Brian Burkhart has this really great line um, if I, I don't think I'm going to remember it exactly, but it's something like that knowing is the res respectful success of achieving a goal. Hmm. And um, obviously that is really antithetical to, you know, what knowledge is and the sort of justified true belief structure, you know, in Western philosophy, that you would have the word respect in a definition of what it is to know something. Um, you know, is also is strange, but that it that definition of knowledge also has within it a kind of predictive element, right? Like it means to 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 res, to res, to know something is to respectfully achieve a goal. 
no, I might be messing that up in some way, but I think that's the, that's the general gist. Um, and that, that obviously entails guessing. It entails some figuring out what is, yeah, not isolating, but maybe um, identifying, right, spe specific things without detaching them from other things. Um, yeah, and, and to do it respectfully. So I don't know, I don't really have any coherent thoughts about that, I suppose, but it is a, an interesting definition of knowledge or a way of thinking about what it means to know something that seems like it would be supportive of the kind of research and, and research project that you're talking about. I'll see if I can find that for you and like email it or something. And Yeah, that would yeah. be great. And uh, I, I wanna look at, um, it was Ian Hawking. Um, I'll send you that too, making up people. Hacking. Great. And also yeah. Kyle White. I don't know Kyle White. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So That's hacking beautiful. and white. And um, yes. And then this one by Burkhart. Hmm. Really helpful. Yeah. That's great. And I'll send you a copy of our, our paper on the relational self. Yeah. Please do. Steps of the relational self. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you for, for being on the podcast. This and was wonderful.